0: Well, hello, hello, hello. good to be back with you again, long time no see, my hillside church family. as I think probably some of you know, I was on a little work slash vacation for the other calling I have with uh, fifteen seventeen. I was down in Arkansas for a conference and we decided to make a road trip out of it for my family. Uh, and so we loaded up our um, very, very, very tiny Kia Soul with all five of us and headed down to Northwest Arkansas. When it's all said and done, it took about, uh, oh, I guess 10 days or so, um, for us to take that trip and had a great time, uh, no matter how close together we were in that car. Uh, but it's good to be back with you again for our Friday morning devotion. Uh, before we hit really good Friday, we had been looking at various objections that people have to. To faith, to the miraculous, to the idea of God, to the you know bringing up things like the problem of evil, and we've tried to kind of hash those things out and say, here's some reasonable ways that we can uh, justify faith, justify the idea of faith in God, and that it's not irrational to believe such things. That yes, there are objections up there out there, but there are also good responses to those objections that at least make it plausible that Christianity is true. Now, I wanna say again up front: this isn't, we don't base our faith merely on just evidence. Uh, nevertheless, evidence is a great gift and thankfully Christianity has quite a bit of it. Um, so there's gonna be things and there's gonna be mysteries in which we're called to place our faith as Christians that we might not always be able to answer or reconcile. The idea of the dual natures of Christ, for example, or the Trinity or, you know, God's sovereignty and man's will. You know, there, there's things like that that are tough for us to to try and explain. That's very understandable. Um, but But nevertheless, even though there's these philosophical conundrums, there are, at least reasonable responses that the, that the church has worked out for the last couple thousand years. So, so I want to go over that with you today. Uh, so thanks for joining me. We are um, today we're going to be looking at the objections to the Bible, and specifically like we're going to be dealing with the question: Is the Bible trustworthy? Can we actually believe what it says is true? Uh, because if we can't, then that's a big problem for the Christian faith, since it's the cornerstone of it is indeed the scriptures so here's some of the objections you might have heard the bible's been translated so many times there's no way we can know what actually happened the bible's full of myths and miracles that we obviously know don't happen in the world so we can discount it for that or maybe a fairly modern objection not new but it's gotten some tread as of late which is that you know um there were other stories other gospels quote unquote about jesus and they didn't get included in the bible and why not And aren't they just as uh, reliable, etc. That was sort of those are sort of the objections that are brought up. Now, if you're a Christian and you face questions like these, the question that I have for you is, do you know what you might say when someone brings these things up? You can't simply say the old sort of rhyme from childhood. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, even though I think that's a just fine, doctrinally sound statement, because the next question can be, well, why should I believe the Bible is true at all? So here's what I want to say to you, five brief reasons for why we can trust our Bibles. Now, I'm just going to look today at why we can trust the Gospel accounts, because I can't go through the entire canon from Old Testament to New Testament. But the reason I want to see, I want to focus on the Gospels is because if we can show that the Gospels are trustworthy accounts of real historical events, well, the Gospels speak about the rest of the scriptures and tell us that those are real trustworthy events. And so if the Gospels are true, then we have good reason for believing all of it is true. So here's the five reasons. Number one, the Gospels are written too precisely to be legendary. Number two, they're too early to be legendary. Number three, too detailed to be legendary. Number four, they're too counterproductive to be legendary. And number five, they're too powerful to be legendary. So first of all, the gospels are written too precisely to be false or to be legendary. What I mean here is the gospels are filled to the brim with precise fulfillments of earlier prophecies made about the person who would be the Messiah. Over and over, the writers go out of their way to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of very specific prophecies made throughout the Old Testament. So in Isaiah 7, the prophet predicts that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. In Micah 5, we're told that he will be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah 53, we're told that he will suffer for the sins of the world and that he will rise again. In Psalm 22 even goes as far as kind of detailing for us exactly how he'll die, by being pierced and by being Uh, crucified. So there's lots of prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, and Jesus fulfills them all. He's shown as fulfilling all the necessary prophecies that would need to be there in order for him to be Messiah. Now, the chances of that happening from just a pure sort of mathematical perspective are almost incalculable, almost impossible. So it's quite reasonable to believe that based on him fulfilling the prophecies that that there is some truthfulness to the gospels and to the rest of the scriptures now you say okay fine the bible claims that jesus fulfilled prophecy i get that but how can i know that the bible what the bible reports is actually true and that leads me to the next point and that is the gospels are written too early to be legendary even non-believing scholars of the New Testament will acknowledge that the Gospels at least began being written no more than 30 to 40 years after the events themselves took place, and frankly, probably much sooner, but we're being generous here. Um, even beyond that, the earliest letters of the New Testament were written no more than 15 to 20 years after the events reported, maybe even sooner when it comes to letters like Paul's letter to the Galatian church or, to, or, or James' uh, letter. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's generally taken for granted that in historical circles, that the closer a historical account is written to the actual events, the more reliable it is. I I think that probably makes sense to most of you. That's how historians try to determine what's true from false about a particular historical person or particular historical event. And the reason that is, is because the closer it is to when the time uh, it's supposed to have taken place, the, le- the the more difficult it is for people to just make stuff up. The gospers, Gospels were far too widely circulated amongst those who could have proven it wrong if it was made up or embellished stuff. Uh, Richard Bauckham, great New Testament scholar who has written quite a bit about this, points out that in Mark's Gospel, most likely the earliest Gospel account, he tells us the man who helped Jesus carry his cross, Simon of Cyrene, was the father quote of Alexander and Rufus. Now, there's no reason for the author to include such names unless the readers know or could have access to them. In other words, Mark is making the point that Alexander and Rufus vouch for the truth of what I'm telling you. If you wanna ask them, go talk to them. They'll tell you their dad carried the cross of Jesus. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, mentions over 500 witnesses to the risen Jesus that people can go and speak to at any time. He makes a note to say most of them are still alive. You can't do that in a public document that early if you're not absolutely certain of the witness testimony being true. Now, it is true. One objection one might have to the authenticity of the gospel accounts is you can say, well, but they got a bunch of miracles. Now, we spent a lot of time going over miracles um, in a previous session here. But one thing that is interesting, if you allow for the possibility of the miraculous, which I I at least hoped or tried to make a case for in the previous session, it's interesting that none of the historians that talk about Jesus ever dispute his ability to perform the miraculous. And these are not Christian historians. So for example, the Roman Jewish historian Josephus calls Jesus a miracle worker the Talmud, that collection of rabbinical writings from early on, reports that Yeshu, as a man, who pr- was a man who practiced sorcery. Another way of saying miracles. In fact, that's one of the reasons that they say his con- condemnation was justified, is because he was not doing it by the hand of God, but by the hand of the devil. He was blaspheming. It's telling that the earliest Christian opponents really never seek to dispute the authority through which he had the power he did. Uh, Or they seek to dispute the authority, but they never dispute the powers. Why? Well, because what he did was too well known to all and therefore it just couldn't really be disputed that he had something special that he was able to do something different that seemed to be supernaturally empowered. Number three, third reasons for why we can trust the gospel is because they're too detailed to be legendary. Here's what I mean. The Gospels are full of minor details that don't really add anything to the narrative. Now, we're used to that in fiction writing that we read today. But that was not the case with myth back then. That didn't happen until the invention of really modern fiction, which only came about in the last 300 years or so. Myth back then only tried to advance the narrative. So, for example, on a and uh, or the History Channel, you may have heard of the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Philip or any of the other so-called Gospels out there. You want to know why it's so obvious to everyone that they aren't genuine historical accounts? I mean, I don't know anyone that believes they are, even people that are definite skeptics of the Christian faith. Well, besides the fact that we know they were written at least 100 years after Jesus' disciples lived, so we're talking up to 200 or so, or or even further, they're too fanciful. In one of the accounts, Jesus becomes a giant for no particular reason. Uh, Jesus takes out a bully as a little child. Jesus does silly sorts of magic tricks, making birds appear in his hands with no real specific purpose. The real gospels tell us all sorts of mundane details, whether the grass is green, what feast season they're in, how many fish were caught at a certain event. Real history does that, fake history did not. Related to this, the the second reason why we know our gospels are real and trustworthy is how detailed they are geographically. Again, in ancient myth, you might have a famous capital city mentioned or maybe even a a couple of places that were maybe a little smaller. But in real history, you have the names of inconsequential towns, villages, and cities that would have added no benefit if the story wasn't true. The only reason they're there is because they were there. It's because that's what's actually happened. There was no significance in mentioning that Jesus went to towns like Jericho or Uh, or frequented places up in Galilee, which is a podunk state, a small state, if you want to put it like that, in Israel. The gospel writers show evidence of eyewitness accounts by this detail. This is what led C.S. Lewis to acknowledge as someone who had uh, been a world-class literary critic and specifically studied myth all of his career as he looked at the gospels, still with a skeptical eye to say that Whatever the Gospels were, they weren't myth. This was clearly the attempt of people trying to record real history. And this really was impactful for C.S. Lewis in his road to conversion. fourth reason we can trust the Gospels, they're too counterproductive to be legendary. And what I mean by that is the Gospels report all sorts of raw, earthy, frankly, what historians call embarrassing details about the heroes. So Jesus loses followers. He asks to have the cup of God's wrath taken from him because he doesn't want to face the pain of being forsaken. Indeed, he yells from the cross, why have you forsaken me? Why would anyone include those details in your story about the hero unless they were true? Again, we have to put ourselves in the mindset of the ancients and the ancients just did not report things like that about their heroes. If you want to see an example of that, look at First and Second Maccabees an intertestamental period book that's part of the Apocrypha. The heroes that are presented there are strong and bold. You didn't want to present them as afraid or scared or anxious. Peter, the man who would go on to lead the early church, is impulsive, is dense, doesn't get it, denies Jesus on the night of his crucifixion three times, the disciples argue over who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God, Thomas doesn't believe without sight, no matter what Jesus seems to teach him, they're just completely in the fog, I mean I could go on and on and on. As has been mentioned many times before, the fact that women are the first ones to discover the empty tomb would have not been something you wanted to include in an ancient account because of the devaluing of women at that time. But again, why would they include it? Because it really happened. It was historic. It was something that actually took place. And then the last reason, which again, I will acknowledge as an argument, uh, not from logic, but just from the, it's an experiential argument. And that is the scriptures are too powerful to be legendary. See what I mean. The number of people throughout history that have begun reading the Bible seriously, even skeptically, that have found themselves so often transformed by its content, indeed leads me to believe that there's something different about this book. People have found over and over again as they've read that they are convicted about their own problems and indeed see their own need for a savior and indeed that leads them to see that Jesus Christ is the savior they need. So, you know, this is these are five five brief reasons for why we can trust the gospels, and if we can trust what the gospels say, which tell us that the rest of the Bible is indeed trustworthy and inspired by God, then we can them we it's reasonable at least to believe we can trust what we read in the rest of the book. Now, uh, we haven't gone over everything in our objections, I think next week I'm going to wrap up this brief series going over the objections people have to faith by looking at maybe, maybe the most controversial objection in our time, and that is, how on earth can you say Jesus is the only way? Well, I hope you'll join me for that. I'm looking forward to seeing you in person this Sunday. I'll be there for both services as we confirm some uh, uh, confirmation students and celebrate together as a church family. God's richest blessings to you and may you have a wonderful weekend. Bye.